Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and things we can all do to live a better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Monday, February the 20th, 2017. This is episode 1956 of the Survival Podcast. It's Monday, so we have a listener feedback show. I got a bunch of stuff on the docket for you today. We're going to hear from another TSP listener with their business success story and kind of a unique thing. Uh, once again, I've done business with somebody and then they said, Oh, it's you. I, I made this business because of your show. And I'll tell you how you can get some cool plant materials from this company. Uh, we also have a story on Bill Gates saying you should tax robots as, as, as though they were the person they're replacing. Huh. Why would Bill Gates, why would a plutocrat, right, want to do that? I'll explain. It makes perfect sense when you think about it. Uh, I have a question on thriving with Asperger's. I, I, well, I've never been clinically diagnosed when I look at my childhood and my mannerisms and things like that, and still things I have with me today. I'm, I'm textbook Asperger's, yet I've been successful in business. Someone who feels the same way wants to know how I was able to make that an advantage rather than a disadvantage. I'll try to explain the best that I can. Uh, question on doing small-scale aquaponics indoors, i.e. the fish tank method. Uh, questions on keyhole gardens. Thoughts on monetization of fish ponds from somebody else. Dealing with rats in the chicken coop. Carrying a gun when the company you work with is anti-gun. A very specific legal question that I'll defer to some degree on. A lesson from the movie Groundhog Day, uh, tying back to my episode a couple weeks ago on finding your passion. And thoughts on choices for a second job. I'll give you some thoughts on that. And then the truth about trophy hunting. I'm calling that Mythbuster Edition. Um, because even the question, while it's not from somebody that's completely anti-trophy hunting, it's making assumptions that just aren't true. It's just not. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and uh, hear from our two sponsors of the day. Guys, you know, prepping involves evaluating your primary survival needs of food, water, shelter, security, and energy, and then shoring them up. That's really the most simple way to understand it in a nutshell. In that effort, ready-made resources is the go-to place to get that done. Everything, and I do mean everything for your prepping needs. Ready-made, ready to go at readymaderesources.com. Hey guys, you know what? I love using herbs over conventional medicine for so many reasons, but there's so much hype in the herbal industry, it's hard to know who to trust. That's why I was so excited over seven years ago when I found Western Botanicals, an honest company with great products and wonderful people who really care about their customers. For all your herbal needs, do what I do and check out westernbotanicals.com. And our TSP Business Directory supporter of the day is Great Escape Farms. They're offering root cuttings of unique edible plants for their nursery. They also blog daily about permaculture and other homesteading topics over at greatescapefarms.com. There'll be a link in today's show notes where you can learn about more about them. And if you'd like to be in the business directory, remember for as little as five bucks per six months, you can be featured. And if you participate at the bronze level or above, you'll be featured on the blog in a weekly blog post. Uh, like Webology was featured today. You might want to check that blog post out because there's a cool contest in, involved with that. I'll tell you a little bit about that one, though, tomorrow. Uh, but get Great Escape Farms, a cool company. Check them out. they got some good stuff. 
Uh, next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode of the year, 1956. And I have three for you today, two from Alex Shrugged, one from Southpaw Ben, and then Notable Births, The Year in Film, Mirror Music, and Other News. Uh, our, se our segments today are the Suez Canal Nuclear Showdown, and then I have U2 is not just an Irish rock band. I also have the death penalty is banned in the UK, almost. And, uh, of course, this is the year 1956, because the episode's 1956. Notable births this year, Leo Laporte, computer tech radio host on Call for Help and Security Now with Steve Gibson. Um, Paula Zahn, newsreader for CNN, Fox News, and other documentaries. Mark Hughes, who died at uh, age 44 in the year 2000, CEO of Herbalife International, died after a four-day drinking binge. Not good. And in entertainment, in music, Randy Jackson, Latoya Jackson, and Kenny G are all born this year. Uh, in sports, Larry Bird, Joe Montana, and Sugar Ray Leonard. You guys might think that like Joe Montana, nah, for me, because I'm such a diehard Steelers fan. Uh, as a kid, I was also a pretty big Joe Montana fan. And during my childhood, you love the Steelers. You had to find something else to root for in football because they weren't exactly the glory years of the Steelers. The 70s were behind us. The, the modern team was well, well out in front of us. And Joe Montana was always kind of a hero in sports to me because of the, the attitude and the willingness to, to just be in the game. I, I've actually modeled quite a bit of my, uh, my attitude, uh, after Joe Montana. Many of you probably didn't know that about me. Bill Maher, comedian and political commentator. Mel Gibson's born this year. Tom Hanks, Carrie Fisher, who died in 2016 at age 60. Princess Leia of Star Wars. Uh, I think if I had to tell you that, you probably wouldn't care who she was. This year in film, The Ten Commandments starring Charlton Heston and Yul Brenner, The King and I starring Deborah Kerr and Yul Brenner, and Forbidden Planet starring Walter Pigeon and Francis Lee Lee Leslie Nelson, but not Yul Brenner. Year in music, K Sarah Sarah, Whatever Will Be Will Be by Doris Day, number one song of the year, Blueberry Hill from Fats Domino, and Heartbreak Hotel, Hound Dog, and Don't Be Cruel. Elvis Presley, after three years, he's an overnight sensation. You hear a little bit more about all of those at the end of today's show. In other news, the Grand Canyon air collision is the deadliest civilian air collision to date. Two passenger planes collide, killing 128 people on board. Uh, a hard drive is invented. The hard, di hard disk drive is invented, created by Reynolds Johnson and his team at IBM. It's the size of two refrigerators and stores, 3.7 megabytes. Think about that the next time you pick up, you know, like... Uh, an MMC card, just saying. Uh, Norma Jean Mortson changes her name from February 23rd onward. She will legally be known as Marilyn Monroe. That happens this year. All right, so let's take a look. U2 is not just an Irish rock band contributed by Alex Shrugged. President Eisenhower has authorized 10 flights over the Soviet Union using the Lockheed U-2 reconnaissance plane. Up to this point, the best pictures of the USA has the U.S. Has our of the, from the, of the Soviet Union our old Nazi photos taken during World War II? Naturally, the United States is worried about defending itself against Soviet aggression. But to hear it from the defense contractors, the Russians are 12 feet tall and eat babies for breakfast. Just recently, Khrushchev of the Soviet Union threatened to bury the West and threatened to nuke Great Britain over the Suez Crisis. The threat is real, but how big is the threat? No one really knows. Thus begins a program of picture taking. Counting planes, tanks, and missiles, the Soviets try to shoot the U-2 down, but so far, no luck, and the pictures are crystal clear. My take by Alex Shrugged. Spy plane? What spy plane? It was embarrassing when the, US, when the Soviet Union finally shot down a U-2. 
with a surface-to-air missile captured by Gary Powers in 1960. It was downright frightening when the Russia Sputnik satellite orbited the Earth in 1957. It demonstrated a technical ability that could be used to spy on the U.S., the potential to drop a nuclear bomb anywhere on the Earth because the rocket that launched the Sputnik was the R-7, an intercontinental ballistic missile design. If you think Sputnik was launched in the pursuit of knowledge, you need professional help. Just like if you think the reason the United States went on the, the moon program was so that we could get to the moon. Because that was all about building missiles that could go anywhere, too, and just getting tons of money poured into research and development, such as the history of both nations. Anyway, the reason I I took this one is I have some uh, a personal antidote, I guess, from the U2 thing. So people think of this U2 thing as being old news. The U2 flying in 1956, shot down in the 1960s. You'd think that they're probably mothballed. U2s are still flying today. Um, it's not talked about much. It's kind of not a secret that they're still flying today, but it's kind of just like, nah, not really. You know, I mean, there might be one or two out there. Well, I can tell you where I knew, I know where two of them were between 1991 and 1993 when I was serving in Panama, because they were there in Panama at Howard Air Force Base. And it wasn't a secret either, because they flew every day. And the plane is such that it burns so much fuel on takeoff, it needs to be lightened for takeoff. They put just enough fuel in it to basically get it off the ground. And then a, another plane, a tanker aircraft, goes up and it refuels in air and then flies its mission. Yeah. And we, so we watched it every day. The U-2 would go up, the tanker aircraft would go up, the U-2 would fuel, and the U-2 would go away and it would come back. And there were two of them. And it looked like, to me, they were flying one one day and one the next. They gave them time to do maintenance and things like that. But they flew every stinking day, I'm telling you. And they were guarded by an Air Force SP, which would be, the, if you don't know that, the equivalent of an MP, uh, so a military policeman. Uh, they were not like a lot of things that were guarded. You know, you just have different guard shifts, and any soldier just handed a weapon and said, guard that. They were always guarded by actual SPs. Uh, they were armed. And there was a line, like a painted line around the aircraft, and you didn't go inside that line. Trust me, you didn't want to go inside that line. Uh, it was still that heavily guarded with some secrecy. Even though you could see it, you couldn't get near it, you couldn't touch it, you better not go near it, that type of thing, all the way up into the 90s. And so I checked recently, and they are officially listed as still in service. What were they doing? I might actually know a little bit about what they were doing, but... My oath meant something to me, and I won't tell you. I'm not sure if I could or I couldn't, but I don't see any reason to. But I will tell you that we did have some knowledge due to some of our work about some of the things those planes were doing. And to this, I think it's important to understand that to this day, in spite of the fact that I jump all over the shit of the state, and I will, there's certain things that, due to honor, you keep your mouth shut about. I learned that from my grandfather. And uh, should I ever see publicly released information uh, that says this is some of the things those planes were doing and it matches up with what I know, I'll say that matches. Otherwise, I just won't. My take by Jack Spierko. With that, let's get into uh, the main topic of today's show and some, uh, some feedback from a listener. So uh, last week I was on Facebook checking out the Regenerative Agriculture Facebook page and I saw a posting by someone that said they were selling water chestnut crumbs. What's a water chestnut crumb? 
It's a water chestnut. That's what it is. It's just alive. It hasn't been killed. It hasn't been peeled and sliced up and stick in it, stuck in a can uh, and then put on the Chinese food section of the, uh, the grocery store. It's actually a living water chestnut. And if you plant it, that means basically it grows. So you could think of it like a water chestnut seed, but it's more like a potato. You put a potato with eyes in the ground, you get new potatoes. That, that's what it is. And they are just a bitch to find. They're just, I, I had a bunch, um, due to an accident, the, the ones that were supposed to be held over for the next season all died. I went back to the company I bought them from. They don't exist anymore. I, I can't get them. So as soon as I saw this, I ordered like 25 of them. And I get an email from this guy, and, and basically I even talked to him about maybe putting them in the MSB, uh, but he's new as a business, and he doesn't have enough inventory probably to sustain the full year. So, And I've learned. I got my chestnuts before I talked about this because I know what's going to happen. He's going to get wiped out. I, I don't know how many he has left, um, but that's one really cool plant. He's got some other stuff, too, that I think is really cool. He's got Jerusalem artichokes, and uh, he's he's got a bunch of those, I think. He's got some disease-resistant hazelnut plants. Uh, he's also got a white Kershaw winter squash that's just huge, and he says that they're vine borer resistant. So I've I've asked him to set some of those aside for me, but I think that's a really good one. Comfrey, uh, Bocking Four. He's got horseradish uh, roots. He's got native persimmon trees. Um, he's got some uh, Norton wine grapes, uh, disease resistant apple scion. And um, cut leaf elderberry, Sambucus nigra. So he's got a pretty good assortment of stuff, and I've got a link in the show notes today so that you can check out uh, his website. And I let him know that I was going to give him kind of a, a call out. So he sent me an email. I like emails like this. It says, you may have seen the USPS email, but your water chestnut crumbs uh, should arrive this Saturday. Uh, so thinking about your offer for the plug, Monday and your advice to not hate money. If you want to mention, I offer a $25 permaculture property analysis that I can do for anyone worldwide as long as Google Earth has up-to-date images of their location. They just need to fill out my survey form and then order. I have that link in the show notes for you guys. His name is uh, Tim Rank. And uh, his, his website, again, is permacultureabundance.com. Again, i got links in the show notes for you. I, I want to point something out, though. This is an example of how our community should be doing more to work together. Um, we have several different companies in the uh, business directory that do website development and things like that. Well, he has an issue with his shipping charges. He charges $8 flat rate for USPS priority shipping for no matter what you order, no matter how much you order, shipping's 8 bucks, which kind of sucks if you're doing you know, 10 seeds, but... It is what it is. The issue, though, is you actually have to add it as an individual item. And he says that his web company wants to charge him a whole ass load of money to be able to upgrade to calculate individual shipping. Um, with And I'm looking at this site, and I'm going, I'm 99% this site is built on WordPress, which means it integrates with WooCommerce. And there's probably a $150 solution to this problem instead of a big dollar solution to this problem, or less. It, 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 there's probably somebody out there that could reach out to this guy and with an hour of work or less could just at least make it automatically add the $8 flat rate shipping charge to the cart universally. 
So it won't add one every time you add an item, but when you add any item, there'll be an $8 shipping charge just there. there there's got to be a way to do that easily. And the community should work together to solve issues like that, and then this f fellow should come back with a testimony for whoever does it. We need to really be doing business together, folks. And like, as soon as I found out this guy was you know, from inside the fold, so to speak, I'm like, I'm going to do more business with him. And I'll try to do that with anybody out there. But I, I'll also say this. It is, this is the second time, just in plants, that I've bought something. For, actually, it's the third, because there's a guy on freaking eBay, too. The third time that I've bought some sort of a plant thing, Marsh Creek Farmstead was another one, um, where I ordered it, and then the person's like, holy crap, it's you. And I don't mean I went out and like, oh, gee, this guy's from our... I mean, I went out and like, there's a legitimate product that I want that I can't find somewhere else. I'm going to buy it, and then it just happens. That means there's a market out there, guys, for a lot of this stuff. Now, on the water chestnuts, I don't want to hurt this guy's business here, but I have to say this because it's true. When we lived in Pennsylvania, there was an Asian grocery store that I used to go to when I was down near Philly, and they just had these things, fresh water chestnuts at the Asian grocery, and they were cheap. Like, you could make some money selling these things, If, uh, if, if you had an Asian grocery and just were willing to package them up and, and ship them to people that wanted to buy them for water gardens and stuff like that, because you could. I figured when I got back into doing stuff that I would go to an Asian grocery here and buy them. I've been to two and I gave up. Nobody has them. So that would just say that's a business opportunity out there. And, I've looked on Amazon, I've looked on eBay, finding live water chestnuts is difficult. Um, that's low-hanging fruit. Now, this guy's propagating his own. That would make it a nursery product, and he has a nursery license. Would you need a license to ship and sell these things? I don't know. I don't know, because here's the bugaboo about this. Okay, If you're doing it as reselling food and you're shipping it through the mail across state lines, that's got its own can of worms I'm not so sure about. If you sell them as plants, then you got nursery. But if they were sold as seed, water chestnut seed, like seed potato, you might circumvent, I don't know, you have to check into the legalities of that yourself, uh, but just so you know, a nursery license isn't really expensive or difficult to acquire. But this is another example, and I think his approach of doing things like water chestnuts and Jerusalem artichoke uh, and horseradish and comfrey, things that can be propagated in large amounts uh, and very, very effectively, yet there's a demand for, really, really smart. So, again, website, abun uh, Abundance by Design Permaculture, and the website um, address is permacultureabundance.com. Check them out today, and uh, if you want a... Uh, Kind of a, a, a you know a look over of your property and some consultation. He does those two again. Uh, just fill out the web form and then make payment for twenty five bucks. So this uh, this next one comes to me from Michael. He says like mines. It gives me a link to an article on ZDNet. Uh, Bill Gates saying that robots uh, should be taxed like people when they take jobs away. So here's here's what he says. Robots should be taxed at the same level as the people they replace to help fund better social services, education, according to Microsoft co-founder Bill Gates. Governments, rather than business, need to take the lead on managing robotic revolution, ensuring there's a plan to deal with unemployment unemployed workers it creates over the next 20 years, Gates told courts. 
Right now, if a human worker does $50,000 of work in a factory, that income is taxed. If a robot comes in to do the same thing, you'd think we tax the robot at the same level, he said. Also, with fewer people working, governments have less income tax to spend at a time when it may need more money rather than less. Gates argues that government should raise taxes on robot capital to slow down adoption and provide the time needed to devise programs that create a net benefit from excess labor. Besides a direct robot tax, he added some taxes could come from the profits made by labor-saving efficiency. Quote, you cross the threshold of job replacement of certain activities of all sorts at once. So you know, warehouse work, driving, room cleanup, there's quite a few things that are meaningful job categories that certainly in the next 20 years being thoughtful about that extra supply is a net benefit. It's important to have policies to go with that, Gates said. People should be figuring it out. It's really bad if people overall have more fear about what innovation is going to do than enthusiasm. That means they won't shape it for the positive things it can do. And, you know, taxation is certainly a better way to handle it than just banning some elements of it, he said. Uh, you can read the rest if you want to. I'll have a link in the show notes. But here's, here's kind of my question for you and one I'm actually going to answer after I ask it. Why would somebody so big in the technology world, somebody whose entire life is based on tech, um, want technology taxed? Why, why do you think that is? Uh, I'll tell you why, because it won't slow down the large corporations at all, not for a second. <laughs> this is this is so typically from the playbook, and if you if you don't have the pattern recognition queued up, you, you might actually scratch your head or think, well, maybe it's his whole philanthropic thing, or or maybe it's his evil wanting to take over the world thing, because Alex Jones says that he's killing children in Africa or whatever. You know, you just put it all aside and don't worry about any of the. Um, the reputation, good, bad, evil, indifferent, that Bill Gates has, and just think of it as more neutral to recognize the pattern. A multi-billionaire, one of the largest technology billionaires in the world, is for taxing technology to slow down development of it. Why? Well, here's what people don't understand when they say, we need more regulations to hold these companies back. Okay, All the effing regulations are written by the corporations themselves. Congress people do not write legislation. Lobbyists take legislation written by lawyers that work for industry and bring it to Congress and ask them to go forward with it. So all of these regulations that are supposedly having stranglehold on business are written mostly by business. Now, sometimes uh, an industry will want legislation that will hold back the big industrial competitors that they have. Like, you know, natural gas might really be hip with holding back coal. So sometimes a little of that's going on. But generally speaking, the regulations they propose actually do affect them directly. They have to comply with them, too like the Food Safety and Modernization Act, for one. So why would big companies spend lots of money to get regulations put in place that actually they have to comply with? Just because they're nice guys? No. No. That's just marketing, right? No. Of course not. The entire purpose is to hinder entrance into the market and competitors coming up from the ground level. See, the big corporations all kind of accept each other. You know, I mean, Ford accepts GM, 
You know, like, like we're, we're, you know, we compete with each other, but what they, they, they don't want is another company like Tesla coming in. That's why they're fighting tooth and nail. Tesla trying to go to a different delivery model of the product. That's why it's so damn hard for Tesla to do well selling their cars because it's so hard for them to actually sell their cars because they don't want to do the dealership model. And there's all kinds of laws written to force you to sell cars through a dealership model. Yeah. Did you know that? No, because no one tells you that. So the technocrats are going to be fine with this robot tax thing because here's what happens. They lay off Joe. They replace him with robot Joe. Even if they have to pay an employment tax on Robot Joe, he still costs less than Joe. And you know what they don't have to pay on him? They don't have to pay health insurance on him. That's the biggest tax they have right now, is the cost of insuring their employees. You have basic, normal property insurance on Robot Joe. He's property. Real Joe's a slave. He has to take care of himself. We have to provide you know, real person insurance for Joe. That's how that works. But what, what that enables is the biggest corporations in the world to go apeshit with automation, but it further hinders the use of automation by smaller corporations who end up paying a tax that's greater than the employee really would cost because they, they'll make up bullshit that disproportionately affects smaller corporations. So don't think this is the end of this. Robot tax, robot tax, it'll keep coming. But it's the same bullshit smokescreen of the reason there's kiosks at all the fast food restaurants is because of $15 minimum wage. Well, first of all, the kiosks are already there and being deployed. With a few exceptions in certain cities, there is no $15 minimum wage. Um, most of the country, the minimum wage is still below 8 bucks an hour. And even where the minimum wage is below 8 bucks an hour, they're rolling out kiosks everywhere. Why? Because it doesn't have nothing to do with minimum wage. When you have a minimum wage employee especially, you're, you're paying more for them in all other costs than you are in their direct wage. Their, their insurance, their unemployment insurance, the, the, the overall cost of labor assigned to them from all the different cost centers that have to deal with a human being, all of that adds up to more than the person's wage. So replacing them when you're a large company is easy. It's easy. And, and the robot tax on minimum wage employees will be lower because they're replacing less labor. And how much income tax does a minimum wage person pay? Nothing. Practically nothing. So it actually incentivizes, robot taxes actually incentivize replacing the lowest paid workers first in mass that work for large companies like Walmart. And it insulates large technological companies like Microsoft who will be developing these technologies from competitors entering their space. Just saying. Just saying. It's very simple pattern recognition if you look for it. Here's a very sincere question from a guy named Kevin, and I'll do my best to answer it. And I, I don't know really any way other to answer this than, than ways I've answered it in pieces, parts anyway over the years. Uh, greetings, Jack. I've heard you mention this occasionally, that you uh, was a, were a child with Asperger's. Uh, it's one of your traits, not a bug, but a feature. 
to use IT vernacular. Having recently nailed this down to something I've dealt with forever, I'm curious as to how you use it to your advantage or bypassed it to achieve relative success, especially where concerns dealing with people. Background, I'm an awkward yet mildly capable 40-ish-year-old guy that has built an okay but not super thriving business and freelance doc and corporate video despite almost constant disease of actually interacting with uh, uh, soliciting business from and otherwise empathizing with people. Apart from managing uh, managing to land an unreasonably awesome life, uh, close relationships are basically something I've never managed. As you can imagine, this becomes a hindrance operating in largely uh, personality and relationship-heavy industry. My biggest and most long-standing clients are those with decidedly technical approach. That technical side of video, however, is rapidly shrinking with simplification and automation. And I, if I don't change, I'm about to become a statistic. The 30-foot view sees you, Jack, as in mostly the same situation but doing much better, relatively speaking. You began in a technical world and moved into media, managed to win friends and influence people along the way. Indeed, that's key to your success and your ability to operate uh, a microphone or plant a shrub is wholly secondary. Personally, the prospect of dealing with people at your level of instruction interaction seems utterly exhausting but necessary. I can't properly build a family or improve our lives on my current technical money, so I need some clue for anyone uh, of like brain on dealing with humans all around us. Sorry if that was rambling, but kind of my thing. Hope it makes some minor sense, Kevin. It does. And I, I think one of the things you have to realize is Jack is this big personality. Uh, it, dude, I know there's 150,000 people listening to me right now. Well, will be shortly. Uh, but I'm talking into a, 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 a metal microphone. A metal microphone. There's no one here except me, the dog, and the goldfish that are cycling my tank and sacrificing their lives to build up uh, a, a nitrate cycle in my tank. That's it. So all that I do every day in most in and out is, is very much solitary work. Um, but that's not always been the case. But I just want you to understand, like, part of why I love this is because I do get the interaction with people, but I also get an insulation from it. And, you know, I tell people at times, can I come by your place? No, sorry. And, and not because I don't want to, but there's times when I just, you know, I've had enough people for a while. And, and that makes it easier than, like, relationship sales. But that is my background. I, I came up in, in technology, and I didn't want to go to college, and I couldn't see the point of me going to college. And I wanted to make a lot of money. And the only leap that I could see from where I was to money was in sales. So that meant that I just had to shut up, actually open my mouth, and go do it. That would be the only, that the sales would be a meritocracy. I would either succeed or fail. And I could sit around and find all kinds of reasons to not go out and talk to people and develop relationships with people and then just stay poor. Or I could go out and do it and get money. So it was wholly money motivated, that piece of it. I had already begun dealing with it. By the time I was in high school, I'd begun dealing with it on a personality level. Because I also wanted girls, right? And, and you, you, you can't do that without talking to them. And I wanted friends, and friends tend to want to be spoken to. And you tend to initiate friendships through discussion. So, in the end, I, I know this is going to sound a little bit lacking in empathy, which is, by the way, a symptom of Asperger's, so you should understand. But... You have to just effing do it. And, and there's, there are some little tricks I developed over the years. Like, 
you really need to be looking people in the eye, or so they say, but that is something that I kind of reserve looking people in the eye, mostly for people that I'm comfortable with. And so what I've learned is if you look at somebody's eyebrows, they think you're looking in their eyes. But you're not. So you're not having that that kind of sharing moment. And that is very that's a very helpful thing. And I don't know when I discovered that, but I think it was somewhere around 12 or 13 when you're always being told, look them in the eye, especially back then because nobody even understood it. Right? You look him in the eye and shake his hand like a young man, that kind of thing. And you just figure out, like, I don't, I'm not comfortable with that. But if I look at the top of the eyebrows or the nose of this person, then as far as they're concerned, I'm looking him in the eye, and so does everybody around me think that, and, and it just stops. So that was actually a very helpful thing. Um, learning to communicate effectively is very important. And part of that actually started as technical writing. So my first sales job was in structured cabling. And you had to write proposals that went to companies, and you had to like write about uh, 200 cables being installed in a building. And, and, it, and do it in such a way that they wouldn't just, like, oh, I can't read this, right? And you also had to do it in a way that it would be understood what you were proposing, so it was legally enforceable as a contract, Uh, so you got very good at, at technically explaining things. And then that gets translated into verbal skill of training things. And then moving into sales, like I did, eventually working for Fluke Networks for, for three years, uh, and having to do presentations and seminars talking about things that are as exciting as like near-end crosstalk and attenuation in front of a room full of a dozen or uh, several hundred or maybe even a thousand people, depending on where I was. And you say, well, like, like, if you're shy or if you have this, how do you, how do you do that? Well, you don't worry about those people. You're the one at the front of the room. If they were smarter than you, they'd be there. At least on the subject you're discussing. And you're not looking anybody in the eye now because there's a whole shitload of people out there. I'm looking at the back of the room. I'm looking at my slide deck and my notes and I'm rolling. And it was just years of working these different jobs. It was primarily money motivated that gave me the confidence to, to be the person that you know. But I'll tell you that you're going to never shake all of it. I still have very few real friends. I remember when my friend Hal Dodd passed away, and I spoke at his funeral. And I said to his mother, because she was like, thank you for being here, and thank you for being a good friend to Hal. And I said, you know, Hal was one of my true friends. He was like a brother to me. And she said, well, he was like that to everyone. And this is a woman that's, that's you know, just lost her son that week. So I said, yes, yes, he was. What what I wanted to say was, yeah, I'm not. Because Hal was. Hal was the guy that was like everybody's friend. And, and not just like passing friends, like real friends, taking an interest in their life, knowing about their kids, stuff like that. That's not me. You know, even sales. I had a relationship that was business-related. That's why we were in, a, you know, in any kind of a relationship. I go see my distributors. It was all business. We might talk about their, if we had a common interest, we might discuss it because that's a good bonding thing. So when I met a guy that never did events and five minutes into the conversation, I find out he owned a Siberian Husky and so did I. We talked for 30 minutes about Siberian Huskies and vacuuming and their fur and they escape and all that shit. And my sales reps sitting there like, holy crap, this can't be useful. And I mean, I was new to the job too, you know, and here I came in and yeah, we'll get an event with this guy. So we're done and I walk out the, I'm on the way out the door and hey, could we do like a counter day or something here? He goes, yeah, sure. Get with my, you know, admin and we'll do that. 
guy's like, how the hell did you do that? I'm like, common interest. But you know how many of those people from that world that I talk to today, other than occasionally maybe on Facebook or LinkedIn? Zero. Why? Because the relationship wasn't real. It wasn't personal. It was business. And that's okay. That's okay. But you do have to be a little bit more outgoing with it. Because um, I honestly, when I, I hate saying this, but when like, people are like, well, my, my daughter's five now and my son's eight and he's in band. I don't give a shit. Right? If I've just met you and we haven't personally connected, I don't care. And I know you're supposed to, but I don't give a shit. Because it doesn't affect my life, and I don't know that you and I are going to... Now, once I'm your friend, I care. If it's because you're... you're, you're you know, when, when I get people to email... Don't think I'm a dick, right? If you email and say, my kids are out gardening, and they're you know, listening to your show, and they oh, I care about that, because it actually is related to me. But if I've met you because we have a contract pending over a, a sale of some test equipment, and you're telling me about your kids, I'll feign interest, but I don't care. So sometimes you have to fake it. Sometimes you have to fake it. But but the key is having a motivation and then understand if, if this is what I want, this is what it takes, then you have to bite the bullet and just do it and, and just find your own little shortcuts and life hacks around it. I, I'm sorry I can't be more specific than that, but that's the truth. That's how I've been able to be who I am. And the more you do it, the easier it gets. You know, Um People all the time say, you're an extrovert. I'm like, I'm not an extrovert. Extroverts don't like to stand in a tree stand by themselves for six hours in the woods waiting for a deer. That's not what extroverts like to do. Extroverts like to be with a lot of people. Um, the crowd size we have here at the events we do at my property, that's about my limit. You know, when it's, you know, when I did things like voices, especially the first year, and there were like over a thousand people there, and 200 of them were trying to talk to me at once, I was still very uncomfortable with that. Part of it feels good, but part of it is uncomfortable because it's so many people. And this is actually something interesting I just realized now, so thank you for the question. It was more difficult because I did give a shit. So usually it was easy dealing with when I used to do stuff in the test industry and all, and, and you got you know a few hundred people and they're all talking to you at the end of a discussion, and they're all talking to you about stuff. They don't really know you. They're just basing what they're saying on what they heard that day. Or they're asking you questions about what your company's going to do next and all. It wasn't really as stressful. Because if the guy that was standing over there didn't get an answer, I don't really give a shit. I don't really care. I'm here to do my job. I got so many hours in a day. I, you know, when I was at these events, these bigger events, I wanted to make sure that everybody that was there got actually spoken to. So it put a little more stress on me. But it's okay. You just do the best you can with life. And if you need to be more outgoing, then you get, you, Become more outgoing. You know, you, you go out and get business when you need business. Or you get really good at marketing so that business comes to you. That's, you know, and there's no coincidence there that I've made a shift from sales to marketing because the, the process of constantly selling wore me out. Constantly dealing with people that I really didn't give a shit about. Constantly sitting down to dinners with a, you know, a consultant, a distributor, and an architect, right? And acting like they were the only three people in my world and doing it tomorrow with their three competitors and listening to everybody's shit about their kids and stuff like that, not really caring, that wore me out, man. So you got to find what works for you in life instead of trying to make, make, make yourself fit, right? you got to find the life that works for you if you really want happiness. 
Okay, so this one's from a guy named Todd. He says, hey, Jack, I have a question about the feasibility of smaller-scale aquaponics indoor systems. My son, Austin, and I attended last fall's workshop, and we're really intrigued by your aquaponics system and have been trying to figure a way to incorporate it into our lives. We don't think we're ready for IBCs and large grow beds required to support it, but are leaning towards trying it with a 100 or 125-gallon aquarium and a couple smaller grow beds for mostly salad green herbs microgreens for now. If I can make it look something like this, and he gives me a link to one of these products that you've seen, I'll put it in the show notes. I have approval from the wife to put it between the kitchen and the great room. She's excited to be able to grow greens and herbs year-round. Is this just gimmicky with 100 gallons or so for fish? I could get some production of greens and herbs and start the journey of aquaponics. Any suggestion for types of beds and sizes? Would you put a raft bed for lettuce right in the aquarium? Uh, approximate number of fish you would put in the aquarium. We aren't really looking for a meat yield, but open to that if uh, would be the best route, something like tilapia. We think it may be an interesting conversation. Educational experience for our home and school children. Uh, and there is something cool about aquariums. Austin loves aquariums and has been successfully keeping two in his room for the past couple years, a 30 community tank and a 55 cichlid tank. <clears throat> he added that one plant uh, we won't talk about from one of your tanks that is doing awesome. The young fry in the community tank love to hide in the roots. Okay. Anyway, um, so here's the deal. Yes, these indoor systems work. It may be difficult to make it look as good as these professionally produced systems doing it for yourself. Um, the one of the challenges with aquaponics is we need to move water, right? Especially want to do any kind of either wicking or ebb and flow bed. From we need to move it up and it needs to flow down, which means if we put an aquarium at the typical height, the the, the stuff we're growing is really high up. So we need to mount the aquarium low. I think they make them up to 75 gallons, maybe even bigger, but I found a metal aquarium tank that I have that I have 255 stacked on. I don't know if it'll be as pretty as you're looking for, but it might work for this and other people that want to do aquaponics that might work for it. With one tank on the lower level and then doing your grow beds on the upper level would probably work. I just have two tanks there. So that's one thing. The next thing you're going to need is a lighting solution. Um, Even just a window, if it happens to be perfectly set up, ain't going to work. And then you're probably going to blast your fish with too much sunlight into the tank. So you'll have to think about a lighting solution. So you're going to need good quality lights. So here's the thing. That can add up really, really quickly in cost. A stand, aquariums are not cheap, especially like, okay, 55s. There are... 55-gallon aquarium starter kits that are really reasonably priced. I got mine for about $150 a piece. That's the filters, the lights, everything. Okay, When you move up to like 75, 150s, 125s, aquariums get really expensive because the glass has to be a lot thicker to deal with the pressure. So, you know, maybe setting this up with a 55-gallon tank might not be a terrible idea. How many fish? This is something you figure out as you go. I, I you know... The, the basic rule with an aquarium is one inch per gallon is about your maximum stocking density. It's probably going to be similar to what you can do with aquaponics because instead of running a, a you know a biofilter or something like that, your, your aquaponics system will be the biofilter. But you may end up going to a much higher stocking. But you're going to do that based on how the fish act and how the plants act. That's always the answer with aquaponics. You say you're not ready to go to IBCs and stuff like that, and all the big grow beds and all. 
okay, I, I just like to propose that if you saw my system, you could set up in a very small footprint one IBC with the top cut open on it and not doing the flip over thing and using the, the Rubbermaid stock tanks from Tractor Supply like we did for your grow beds, you could set that up in a very small footprint and you could probably do it for less money. And you're not going to need a lighting solution because it's going to be outside. And if you make it small enough, you could even board it in with pretty, you know, fencing board or something like that to make the wife happy. I'm not saying you should not do the fish tank thing. I'm just saying that's something to think about. Will you be able to grow year-round? No. No. Because your winter comes and then, you know, it just it is what it is. You can keep some stuff that goes like garlic and stuff like that running in it in the wintertime so that there's something cycling there. But the water gets colder. Your fish eat less. So they produce less nutrients, so you need less plants. And as it warms up, you grow plants, and it all works itself out and bounces. So that's another thing to think of. Here's another thing. When I found this tank stand, I went, this is great. This is a solution I've been looking for. Okay, issue. The lower tank, when it comes time for maintenance, cleaning it is going to be a nightmare. Because usually what you use is a siphon, and you put one end of the siphon in the tank and one end in the bucket, And then that siphon has, obviously, suction, and you go and you basically vacuum your gravel out. You All the excess waste that's down there in the gravel gets vacuumed out. And that needs to be done about once a month with about 20% of the water removed from the aquarium and then replaced, 20% water change. If your son keeps aquariums, you're familiar with this. Well, imagine doing that when the tank's only a few inches off the ground. So before I invested in the stand and made a commitment to this, I was like, I need a solution. There is a product called the Python Aquarium Maintenance System. It's on Amazon. I have a link in the show notes for you. Basically, it has a 25-foot long hose, and you can get longer hoses for it if you want to. And it attaches to a sink that has a fitting like for a garden hose, or you can run it out the window and attach it to a garden hose. By running water on that side, it creates suction on this side and pulls your water out. So you can run your water into a swale or into a catchment or just onto the ground. And then when you're ready to put water back in, you just flip a switch and the water and now runs through the, the siphon hose back into the tank. If you're going to do an indoor aquaponic system with a fish tank and you're going to mount the fish tank low so that the, the, the vegetation can be at a reasonable height, I so, so, so recommend that you get one of these things. And I think if you're an aquarium person, you're going to want to know about this thing anyway. Personally, I think the concept of using the stand I found as a frame, and even if you're going to decorate it up, might really work. But again, you got to think about your lights and uh, maybe scale the aquarium size a bit down. Um, you're not going to grow a lot of stuff with this anyway. So you only need so much footprint to grow. And your idea of greens and herbs and microgreens, that's, that's the type of thing that you're going to grow. Raft bed floating directly in the aquarium. You can try it. However, now what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to put in a light system for those plants and a light system for your, uh, your other plants. Looking at my stand right now, it's kind of ideal for it because you can get a flat-based LED plant light mounted to the bottom of the, the, where, the, where the top tank's sitting and then still put your grow beds and stuff up there. And if you want to do ebb and flow, you just need some space between your lights so that you can have your drop down to it. I think that'll work really well. 
I'm going to sort of kind of do something sort of kind of like that with my tanks. What I'm actually going to do is build a wooden rack. Now, mine won't be super pretty. I don't care. It's in my office, so I can do what I want. But that will put uh, four or five-gallon tanks vertically across the top of my top tank. Two of them will be plumbed down to the lower tank and two to the upper tank. And there'll be things in there like duckweed and guppies and stuff like that, just for biofiltration. So it won't really be aquaponics, but it'll kind of function that way. There's a lot of things you can do. But really check out these these metal frame stands. And uh, let me check before I even finish this segment. Yeah, they, I'll put the link to the one for the 55-gallon one so you can see what it looks like. But then you can find all the other ones. They make them for 10-gallon, 20-gallon, um, 65, 55, 30-gallon, and 75-gallon. Um, some of the reviewers say that uh, the tank, the stand is wobbly or whatever. It's not super steady, but it ain't going nowhere. And uh, you could certainly beef it up a little bit if you wanted to, but what I found is actually putting the aquariums on it, the weight actually made it more stable and less wobbly. Um, if, if my grandson spent a lot of time in my office unsupervised, I'd, ha I'd probably have it strapped to the wall. But again, if you're going to make it look pretty, that gives you a lot of opportunity to put some cross you know, cross members and things into it. And I, I think maybe that would be the approach I would take. Because a 55-gallon tank is, is pretty substantial. It really is. And I, I think if you look at these frames, you could go to 75 if you want to. But I don't know. If it was me, I'd probably try it with 55 first. Keeps your investment down. And um, you can check out either Walmart or PetSmart and look for their 55-gallon aquarium starter kits, uh, one by a company called Topfin, the other by a company called Aquatech. Uh, both of those are about $150 to $160 all in, um, and it's, it's a pretty decent deal. Here's another thing for those of you that are in the fish tank phase. Um, Petco, not PetSmart, every so often does a dollar a gallon sale on just the tanks. That means you can buy a 40-gallon breeder tank for $40, bucks, and they're normally over $100. So that's another place to kind of keep an eye open for uh, to buy your tanks. If you're not going to want all the stuff that goes with it, if you're doing aquaponics, you may not because you're going to have a different filtration and lighting solution in mind. So there you go. I hope that helps. It is possible and um, it is doable and people have done it. But it's going to be a little bit of garden greens and stuff like that, a little bit of herbs. It's not going to be any kind of major food production thing. So do think about maybe an outside solution as well because the sun is free. I'm just saying, lights are a big part of this type of system. And um, just a final thing on that, if if you just think it would be cool, and you, like the fish tank and the, the food's a bonus, but having the fish tank out there is great, then you know, you're know you not going to probably spend much more money on it than you would for an equivalent tank. A few bucks extra for the lights and stuff like that would be a way to look at it. But just consider all your options. Next up, I have a question on Keyhole Gardens. And uh, this is from a gal that called, uh, about a, or, uh, called in, I think, or, or wrote in about a week or two ago, whose husband wanted to move because they were too far from work. And she says that it looks like they're going to be able to stay because he's uh, considering it a different job with the company he's working for that would let him work from home a couple of days a week. And now she's planning more stuff, and she wants to ask about keyhole gardens. She says, well, what are the important features in a keyhole garden? What is a cost-effective way to design a garden area with multiple keyhole gardens? I've seen pictures of lots of different designs, but I'm curious to know which features are most important. Um, let, let's talk about what a keyhole garden is. A keyhole garden is basically a, a, a you take your, a raised bed with uh, and, and bend it in a sea. 
That's the easiest way to think about it. A raised bed bent in a sea. And that means that we can walk in the middle and we can easily access all parts of the garden and it becomes very space conscious in a way. Because unlike a long bed, it occupies a smaller space, but it's still the same amount. If there's 100 square feet of grow area, there's still 100 square feet occupied. You can't get something for nothing. What are the important features? Let's start out with an admission. I'm not a huge fan of keyhole gardens. I think they're kind of a novelty. I think that if you have a space that really screams out for small beds, small footprint beds, they can work very, very effectively. Um, if you have an area where it really makes a lot of sense to put a garden bed in, and it would be difficult to do it and have good access to that bed 360 degrees, there'd be one side that would be difficult to access, then I think keyhole gardens make sense. And that's the only place I think they make sense. Because otherwise, why not just build, you know, four by four foot uh, square raised beds? Other than if you like them, because you think they look cool. Well, that's fine. Just know why you're doing what you're doing so you know whether or not you're willing to spend the additional cost that there may be to get it done. She says that she uh, would like to edge it with logs cut from some pine trees recently and cut down. Concern the logs will rot within a year. Yeah, they probably will. Pine with wet soil against it is going to rot really, really quickly. There's a solution to that, though. Um, if you build the structure and then put a barrier between the logs and the soil, like a vapor barrier, tarp, uh, plastic, you, you'll get a lot more life out of them because they'll stay dry. Uh, you can also maybe treat them with some level of a treatment, uh, you know, a water sealant or something like that, except that if you're using rough cut pine, you probably want that bark and all on it. It's not really going to have a great deal of success having something like Thompson's water seal get into it. But if you're stripping the bark and it's just like bare wood, then a stain or sealer would, would help as well. But if you just stack wood up and especially a softwood like pine, yeah, and all things are kind of things are going to eat it and it's going to go away pretty quickly. So I wouldn't do it. I just wouldn't do it that way at all. So um, the number one material used to make keyhole gardens that I've seen are the pre-designed concrete pavers for building retaining walls that you can buy at Home Depot, Lowe's, etc. They're not expensive until you need to buy like a couple pallets of them, and then they could be quite expensive. So then you're back to, do I really want to do this? Because... And we can do this with something like landscape timbers as well. In fact, I would say cost-effective, bang for the buck, probably the best way to do this would be with landscape timbers. Now there's people, but they're treated and you're going to die. And No, 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 no. The, the, the treatment that's used on landscape timbers today is just not worth it. I've, I've done a bunch on it in the past. I'm not going to hash it out again. If you're worried about it, use something else and don't waste my time trying to convince me that it's going to hurt you. But, you know, your regular landscape timbers. And then what you do is basically do what I said. You build kind of a C formation out of them. And I know it's tempting to use the material that you have available. But, again, unless you can figure out some way to pressure treat it, it it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to go away on you. Or the other thing you could do is cinder block and masonry and actually – you know, put it in place with masonry, and then it's permanent. And there's a, there's, I know that people would look at that and say, well, they're ugly. Well, paint it, right? We'll paint it. Uh, it would be another, rel that would be more cost effective than pavers. Definitely more cost effective than pavers. 
Another option, you could do it with cinder blocks. Don't even worry about masonry. Do it freestanding. Fill the holes with dirt. You have more grow area. Put some kind of stuff that grows on the area. And you could face it with your logs. And, and that would work well. And those logs would probably last really well then. You stack them vertically, put them together with like galvanized spikes. Uh, they would probably last a long time because they're not in dirt soil contact at that point. So those are all different ways you could do it. But let's be, let's be clear about the reason for them, right? The, the important features and all that. It's, it's we're doing this because we like the way they look. Or functionally, there's a place that, that was really great for growing stuff that it will be difficult to access the back, what will end up being the backside. Because I, I can't see how it would ever be that difficult to access the, 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 the vertical sides, I guess you would say. If you could access the front, you should be able to access the vert. Maybe, and maybe you could be more space conscious because you get it closer to a wall on one side. You don't have to worry about getting back there to access it and what have you. Because uh, you, but you're still, you still, whatever you can reach from the center is still whatever you can reach from the center. I generally design beds to be double reach. So if you're going to design a single reach anyway, it's just, I, I don't know. I, I think they're a little bit overhyped. And if you want them, you should do them. Those are the different ways I can think of to get it done. But again, you put pine against soil, you're going to have rotted pine. I'd say you get two, three years out of them before they're just gone. Uh, it's up to you. But what, what she actually wants to do from a drawing that she included is more like a mandala design. And then that's very aesthetically pleasing. But again, I'm just saying, from a productivity standpoint, you're doing it for the aesthetics. You're doing it for the aesthetics. Um, And, and that mantle design doesn't really work with things like landscape timbers really well and because it's, it's not curvy. It's not bent where we can take our logs and we can vertically, you know, stack them. So you, you have to make your own decisions on that, Becca. Here's an interesting question from Ben. Ben says, how do I monetize my catfish ponds? I recently bought a home and property with two ponds. One is two acres and the other is a quarter acre. Both ponds are stocked with channel cats and brim. Many of the catfish are two foot plus. I want to turn this into a paying enterprise on my farm. Uh, the two options that come to mind are either allow people to pay to fish, make arrangements to sell fish to restaurants or similar establishments. I'm not sure who would take this one, Jack uh, or a council member. Um, thanks for all you do, Ben. Okay, so here's the deal. I think it's a terrible problem you have, and you should move out of your house and give it to me, and I'll take care of it. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I would just say the hell with everybody and, and, and I'd fish my own ponds and, and be happy. But the, the truth is, if you want to make money selling catfish, you'll make far more money selling access for people to fish for catfish uh, than you will selling a raw piece of fish to a, a, a restaurant. Unless you find a restaurant or two that are really big on locally sourced food. Really, really big on it. And, and I don't know that you're... I still don't know that you're going to work out uh, ahead that way. Because generally the way you charge people when you do a, a fish-for-money operation, there's a flat rate and then a limit on the fish, or there's a flat rate and then a price per fish, and there's still a hard limit. So that would mean that you know John and his son come to fish at your pond, and you say the flat rate's five bucks and it's $5 a fish, and fish have to be at least... X inches long, and, and you can only catch so many or whatever. And he pays you that money. We well, got the 10 bucks whether he catches anything or not. Now, he's probably not coming back if he doesn't catch anything, but you see what I'm saying? Like, 
you can charge per fish caught more than you'll ever get by the pound for fillets of that fish. If you charge $5 a fish, um, you know, up to a certain size and then maybe $10 for over a certain size, you want to put a limit so they're not all fished out really, really fast, um, that's going to be more money than you're going to get for that fish. It just is. I mean, you have to really be farming the hell out of fish at scale to make money selling them, you know, into the market. Um, so then you have to decide, do you want people on your property? Do you want people on your property? And do you want to have to deal with that type of a business? Or do you want to find a few places where you can offload some of this fish and, and sell it and, and, and do the hard work of standing out there catching them for yourself uh, to deliver them? And that might be more appealing. The, the, the concern I have is actually longevity. Channel catfish generally don't breed well in ponds like, you know, stock ponds and things like that. They have some specialized breeding requirements. If you could determine that these fish are breeding and maybe get a little help from like a state fisheries biologist or something like that to determine like how many to harvest and when, and you could make this sustainable, then I think it makes sense. Or if you can find a source of fingerlings and get some kind of an approximate um, population estimate and be restocking so that you're growing out fish, then I think you can make either business sustainable. If you're just going to try to go off of what you have and you're going to just burn it out quicker than you would ever think. So, you know, you got to really think about that. My question is, do you need this money? Do you need this money? Because I, I think that if it were me, and again, you do what you want. It's your land. If it were me, I would be like, oh, great, I have a pond full of fish. Yay. What do I do now? Well, I fish, and I take the fish, and I use them for myself. You know, I mean, it, it's up to you, dude. But that that's what I would do. I, I wouldn't try to monetize this. I wouldn't want to have, you know... You have to have hours of operation, and people come to fish, and you got to talk to them. They're leaving crap on your property, and uh, you know. But I've, I'm going to tell you that I've known a couple places that have done just that, and they've done well for themselves. Uh, especially if you're like a touristy area, and people want to fish while they're there, and a lot of those people will do catch and release. But then you got to be careful with that too, like because a channel cat gets a hook deep in its guts, it's going to die, right? So you got to. You gotta balance all of that. Me, I'd, I'd spend my days fishing and not worry about it. Next one says, uh, any tips on managing rats? Rats have chewed away into my chicken coop. I've caught some in a trap using peanut butter, snap trap using peanut butter, chicken food, and cat food. I caught some in a half a heart with chicken food, then drowned them in a bucket. They have a little highway going through the hole in the coop. I closed up the hole once, but they drilled back through. I'm wondering if I can trans, uh, use that transit path in a way to catch them. So far to no avail. They're shifty. They seem to learn from their dead. I catch one with peanut butter and now they won't touch it. I put a trap near the hole and they cut and they stay clear. I move the trap and the, uh, the highway is open again. The thing that comes to most people's mind when I talk about rats and their function as a vector for disease, I can relate to the subways of New York City, is disease an issue of a big deal in a rural setting? Yeah, it depends on how many. It depends on how many, and because they're shitting somewhere. And where are they shitting? That that alone is a concern. So, yeah, it's 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 a problem. Uh, it's probably not as big a problem as it is in most people's heads, especially Yuppie's heads. This is the first year we've had rats. Having had chickens here for three years, I'm wondering if we're in a predator lull 
or the mild winter last year allowed them to grab a hold. Uh, it's the seacoast region of New Hampshire, USDA Zone 5B. Everyone I talked to around here has had rats show up in the last year. My family lives 1.5 hours inland. They've never had rats and have way more animals. Barn cat? I don't want to do poison for fear of poisoning the critter that eats the dead rat. I did try the baking soda flour sugar trick with supposedly gases in their stomach, uh, which, as a lure suggests, kills them because they can't fart. There was no sign of them touching the concoction. I don't think it works either, dude. I just, I think that's bullshit. I'm uh, thinking of getting out early on a warm morning and sniping them with my 22 as they transit the highway. I bet it would yield me one dead rat if I was lucky. What would Jack Spearco do, Matt? Well, Jack Spearco got cats. So there's there's no question about what I would do. What I did was get cats. There's a couple things to consider with this, though. First of all, <clears throat> I believe that cats are very trainable when it comes to leaving your animals alone, and that's more so the case if you get kittens. And so I would recommend that, that you get kittens and that you do socialize them. You spend a lot of time with them. You treat them like pets that live outside. You don't want cats that are basically stray cats to call your place home. You feed them. You care for them. You get them fixed. You pay their vet bills. You know, you do all of that stuff. You make sure they have a nice, cozy place to cat up. But they're outside cats. With some understanding, like you live in a very cold climate. When we had some days this year that were down in the teens, my cats came in for the night. And so you got to think about that too. Like you either got to have a place for them that's really well prepared, like maybe even some kind of supplemental heat or something. They can survive, but I mean, you're just being cruel to an animal, in my opinion. They're, 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 a cat is not, na these cats that we have, um, their ancestors are not native to very, very cold climates. They are, Just aren't. I mean, in the way I look at it, you've got an animal that's doing a job for you, right? So you have an obligation to make it comfortable in, in doing that job. And it'll do a better job if it's comfortable. The other thing is the effects on your neighbors. You know, if you live in a, a small suburban neighborhood, cats can be a problem if they're outside cats. So you've got to kind of look at how much land you have, how much time do you think they'll release, because they're going to leave. They're going to leave your property. But how often? Uh, our, we have three acres. Our cats don't leave very often. They do leave, but they pretty much go to the woods behind us, and they don't really cause any trouble there. And they figured out that the giant dogs that live here chase away all the rival cats. So that it, they're just better off inside their fortress of catitude, right? So that's a consideration. And, you know, when you're getting your cats, if you're getting them from a rescue organization or something like that, a lot of times those people don't think that cats are normal animals and belong outside. So it, it's... I felt it was necessary to be upfront with people that I got my cats from and say, these are going to be outside cats, they're going to be barn cats, but they're going to be cared for, they're going to be loved, they're going to be pets, but they're just going to be outside pets with a job. Rodent elimination. There's another consideration. What kind of rats do you have? We do have a few of the larger Norwegian uh, rats, the, the, the rats that do not belong here. The invasive species rats occasionally pop up here, but the majority of our rats are what you would call a cotton rat. They're a native rat. They, they do belong here. They're a native species to our area. And they're smaller. Our cats are more than capable of dispatching even the largest adult cotton rat. And we have some wood rats too. Same thing. It's like a giant mouse. They just eat the shit out of those. Um, I've seen them get some pretty good kills on some fairly sizable Norwegian-style rats. But there's a, a size limit where a rat is a dangerous critter And what the cats tend to do best is break the breeding cycle. They'll find that nest with all those little baby rats in it, and they'll eat them all. 
they'll just eat, like, especially they at least like pinkies and fuzzies. That's like candy to a cat. It's like oh, just and they just eat it. So, so that's a way that they have an effect on the population. So it's not a silver bullet. So I want you to understand that before you go out and get a couple cats. Two, I actually recommend two cats. Um, we were able to get a brother and sister that were living under some lady's trailer that were about three months old. It was a perfect scenario. Well, they got to stay together. We got them as soon as they were old enough. We got them fixed. They have each other. They, they, cats don't like to be in big packs in spite of what crazy cat women seem to think, but they do like to have other cats around. And they're less bored, so they get into less trouble and they cause less trouble. And they do less wandering if you have a couple cats. And a male and female is a great mix. And what you'll find is cats have personalities, and some are more apt to hunt one way and some another. By having two, you'll probably get two with a little bit different hunting personalities. Uh, our big cat, the big, uh, big tabby fox, He does most of his hunting in the buildings, you know. He and usually the ones that he sleeps in. He doesn't spend a lot of time out at the duck house and things like that. Though he was he nailed one yesterday out there. That was pretty cool. Uh, he's probably not spending any time at night out there at all anymore because the hot wire. Uh, he, you know, I'm sure he's been shocked by it and he knows not to go near it at night if it's not open. Uh, so that's that's a downside. I can't have him in there and have the the hot wire on at the same time. It just doesn't work. And so the coop is not as well patrolled as it maybe had been. But our population has gone down dramatically since we brought the cats in. It's been very effective. And the dogs, especially Charlie, have been trained that rats must die. It wasn't a very difficult thing to do. A small rat terrier-like dog might be another good thing to, to put in place. The other thing, though, is they're there for a reason. They're getting free food. So you need to get rat-proof chicken feeders. That's the number one thing you can do in your situation. Cut off their food supply. You know that that spill-proof, rat-proof chicken feeders. Um, it, it may be even if you want to go low tech, you build kind of one of the bucket feeders with PVC pipes where the chickens stick their head in, and they don't make a mess. And then at, at night, you hang it from a tree or something, and hang it where the chickens can reach it. Reach it, and once the chickens are done with it, you know, for the evening, lift it up where the rats can't get to it. Cut off their food supply. That, that's, that's a huge thing. Traps. I've seen all these creative ways to make drowning traps. And, and, and the simplest thing that I've found for killing rats is sunflower seeds in a bucket of water. You fill a bucket, you put a, put a scoop of sunflower seeds or two in a bucket, a five-gallon bucket, fill it up three-quarters of the way with water, and the seeds float on there. And it's a very short jump for the rat. The rat looks at that and goes, I can get those. That's easy. And he goes, like quicksand, right through, and they can't get out. And in the morning when you dump your seeds out, you got dead rats. I've had up to three at a time in one bucket. Be careful. Sometimes they're not dead, and a rat can be dangerous. But that, I would, where this highway is, I would set up a five-gallon bucket, about three-quarters, you know, five-eighths-ish full of water with a couple inches of sunflower seeds on the top. And in the morning, I would just get another bucket with holes drilled in it, like for my fodder system. If you don't want to do fodder, dump the, dump the, the seeds out. You could even leave them there maybe about two days before they're going to start to get skanky. So maybe every other day, dump it and shake that bucket with holes in it to drain your seeds out. Feed them to your chickens. And just add that to their ration, and at the same time, you're killing rats. And that'll be dynamite. The other thing, if you're storing feed near the coop, 
It needs to be like in a metal can or something. And if you're storing it in your barn or whatever, metal garbage can is the number one way I've found small flock holders and all to, to store their feed because they can't get into it. If you have bags and stuff, they're going to be tearing into it and, and what have you. And, and I, I can't emphasize how much the difference the cats made. A couple years ago, before we got the cats, I had a fall event here, and it was right after my old cat died. He'd been gone about six months. And that's about how long it took for the population to really come up. And we had an event, and there was a freaking rat several times during the event at night when we're sitting out in the barn drinking it all that came running down the rafter, went down, and was taking um, fish pellets out of the f fish pellet bag, just back and forth, right in front of people. And, uh, I mean, we don't, we don't have that since the cats came. We just don't. So I, that's what I did. And you got to take all of those things into consideration. And the whole thing, they're going to eat songbirds. They're going to eat this. You know, animals eat other animals. That's just the way that it is. Uh, a couple cats uh, around a homestead are going to primarily prey on rodents. That's the main thing they're going to eat. If you're feeding birds, feed them in you know elevated bird feeders. Don't feed them on the ground because that's not cool. Because then basically you're setting up an ambush. Um, and, and, and you know get those cats well integrated with your animals so they don't they don't pose a threat to your animals because they will accept like okay they live here too. And I'm allowed to kill everything else. That That's kind of how they work uh, if they're raised properly. Let's take another one. Okay, just to be completely safe with this one, I'm going to change this guy's name to Tom from his actual name because somebody that works for the company might listen to this and put two and two together because of the location on top of it. <clears throat> it says, Jack, I'm a, a firefighter in southeast Texas. On my days off, I drive an 18-wheeler and go into refineries on a daily basis. They are very anti-gun with signs at the entrance. They don't want firearms on their property at all. My question is, I haven't found any state law saying I can't carry into an oil refinery. What I have found is that since my 18-wheeler has a sleeper and it is intended for overnight occupancy, it should fall under the state of Texas castle doctrine. I'm wondering what my legal basis would be if for some unlikely event I would have to use it inside the refinery or if in the process of being searched, it is found. I have heard this question of firearms and 18-wheelers in the law. Thanks, Matt from Southeast Texas. Okay, does the sleeper cab of an 18-wheeler meet the definition of a domicile under the Texas cab? I have no idea. Please call a lawyer and ask that before you base your life on it. I'm not an attorney. I don't play one on TV. I don't even pretend to be one in my sleep. I am not a lawyer. I don't know. That's why whenever I have a business question that has legalities in it, I call a lawyer. Right? And if it's a tax legality question, I call a tax lawyer and a CPA. Because I don't have an understanding of these moving points of the law. Here's one thing I do know about the law in the state of Texas. If you are a concealed carry holder, um, they can put up all the we hate guns, don't bring your guns here signs they want, And it doesn't apply to you unless they put up what they call the 3006, and now that open and carry is legal, the 3007 sign. If they have that sign up, you are violating the law by carrying a gun onto their property. I'm going to admit something that I didn't realize I didn't know until now. I don't know how that applies to long guns in your vehicle. I, I really don't. Because carrying a gun, long or short, in a vehicle in Texas is legal. There's certain things you got to do. You can look it up or call a lawyer if you're not sure. But you can, you can, you can definitely in Texas with no permit whatsoever carry a handgun where the driver can occupy it in your vehicle in Texas as a, as a means of protection. 
What you can't do is get out with a strap to your body and walk around it without a permit. Okay? So I I just gonna put and I'm gonna point out that don't think that applies to you and there's states where that will put you in, in federal not federal, the, the state penitentiary for a long if you do that in New Jersey, you might go away for a decade. Such is the difference between the states. So anybody listening to that generically, you need to know your shit for your state. And, and those of you that carry a gun in your vehicle in a state where that's okay, you need to always remember that when you cross a state line to go do something, it may not be legal there, and you need to, in advance, know that you can't do it because uh, that would be a problem. But if this place doesn't have that 3006 sign up, and if you carry concealed and you just have to keep your gun in your vehicle, then th their sign doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean jack diddly squat. That's how the law of the state of Texas is on concealed carry. All right? So that's the first thing I said. What sign is there? Even if you're not supposed to be carrying somewhere, you could end up with a problem. But if you ever actually had to use the gun, the question of whether or not the use of force was legal and legitimate is going to be the same in my understanding. Again, check with a lawyer. This is how I understand it, though. The basic question is, would a reasonable person in the same circumstances with the knowledge that the person had at the time have found it reasonable to use lethal force for the defense of life? And if the answer is yes... The use of force issue doesn't even have anything to do then with the legality of the weapon. You could still f face an illegal weapons charge, but you're not all of a sudden guilty of murder because you weren't supposed to have the gun. It's still a self-defense question. And in Texas, basically, you have a right, and you really do in every state, but a little bit more clear about it. You have the right to defend yourself. You don't have a, a need of retreat. And it's not just the, like, we keep the castle doctrine, I think, of their house. It doesn't just apply to your house. It applies to you and your personhood. You have no, you have no, uh, duty of retreat because your duty of retreat could end up in you getting dead. If, if, I, if somebody's coming after me and I turn my back to walk away, I could end up dead. So it just kind of spells that out because in, in really in any state, now again, the possession charges and things like that are totally different in state to state. But in any state, if, if the answer to the question would a reasonable person under the same circumstances with the same knowledge have found it necessary to use lethal force, if the answer is yes, then it's a legitimate self-defense shooting. And it almost doesn't matter where you are. Again, though, other charges. So you got to find out, well, you, you probably already know, but the, the, the key comes to how this is posted. Because in Texas, again, this is Texas only, you can put up signs that say, guns suck, we hate guns, don't bring your guns here, picture of a gun with a line through it, all that shit. If it doesn't say 30.06 under state law, blah, 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 the carrying of a, of a, of a weapon with, by a concealed carry permit holder in the state of Texas is illegal on these, if it doesn't say that, it doesn't apply to you as a concealed carry holder. It just doesn't. So that's, that's the way to think about that. But if you want more specific legal answers, please, please get an attorney to answer that. And I'd love to hear what they have to say. I'd love to hear back from you. You can probably find some local attorney that, would be happy on some downtime to just have, if you find a, a gun, a gun loving lawyer, you know, just might not 
be unwilling to have that as a pro bono conversation because it's probably a very quick answer, probably quicker than the answer I gave you. Okay, so um, like I said, it was last week I did a show on following your passion. And basically, instead of following your passion, it was more finding your passion because I, I've met people that just they, they don't know what it is that they're passionate about. They, they can't find their passion. So I, I took a stab at here's some mental exercises and things like that that you can do to find your passion or, in many cases, to admit to yourself what your passion is. Because your passion doesn't always translate into a business. But it's still something you should be building your lifestyle design around. And so I gave a whole bunch of different kind of mental exercises. I've heard back from a lot of you that have started to use them, or like one lady's passed it on to her daughter, and she's using them now, and that's great. So that was effective. But there's a comment from John N. on the blog for episode 1952, Before You Can Follow Your Passion, You Have to Find It. Here's what he said. With regard to using a mental exercise to follow your passion, I would suggest what if you were Phil the Weatherman in Groundhog Day and when you wake up tomorrow, everything in real life resets, including your bills, your businesses, your worries, the people around you, what would you do today? To me, if I need to put myself in the mindset of trying to work out what my passion is, I think of this film. I don't know how many people haven't seen Groundhog Day. It seems like a movie that most people would have seen. But just in case you're going, huh? The, the concept of Groundhog Day, Bill Murray is the star of it. He's a weatherman. And they're in Puxatawney, Pennsylvania for Puxatawney the, uh, Phil the Groundhog to come up. And he's kind of an asshole type of a, a weatherman guy that sees himself as one day being bigger than he is at this point. He's there with a cute girl, and you know that leads to a romantic movie story, blah, blah, blah. But what happens is the, the, they get snowed in. He goes to sleep. He wakes up in the morning at the little bed and breakfast he's at, and it's Groundhog Day again. He's right back where he was, and everybody around him is clueless. They're, they, to them, it's their first day of Groundhog Day. And he's in like this temporal rift where he notices that it's being repeated over and over and over and over and over again. When he tries to tell somebody to think he's nuts, doesn't matter because by tomorrow it's reset. Got it? So he starts out doing some antics, like he gets really drunk uh, and 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 messes up a car and when the cops pull him over he asks for flapjacks and he kidnaps the groundhog and lets the groundhog drive the the truck off of a cliff and you know he wakes up and he's still there and so eventually he kind of turns a corner with this as this lady becomes his love interest and he starts the, like learning French poetry because she you know likes French poetry and in this movie it, it turns out that that she is his passion, right? But it would be an interesting exercise. And if you haven't seen the movie, I think it would be a much more effective exercise if you had. Because in doing this, he learns to play the piano beautifully. He goes to this lady for his first lesson over and over and over again. And all of a sudden, he's playing at a very advanced level. And she's like, you've never done this before? No, this is my first day. you know. And he learns to do ice sculpting. And he learns, all, he learns so many things that he's able to do. And when, you, when I watched that, I remember thinking that very thing. What would I do? Because sooner or later, this loop will end. And I'll take all of it with me. How would I spend that time? I wouldn't spend it driving around drunk in a car because I, I don't care. I, my actions have no consequences. 
Because eventually my actions are going to have a consequence. Eventually that loop is going to end. And what would I want to learn? What would I want to do? And, you know, when we did that show, I talked about how my passion is being outdoors, hunting and fishing and growing things and teaching and how all that is what I do today. Well, here's the thing. I wouldn't be able to do this. I wouldn't be able to do this. Because I'd be in that temporal lump. I'd have to go out and do something else. I'd have to develop some of those skills and all. It's an interesting exercise. And if you've never seen the movie, it's it's got to be like 20 years old now or something like that. Been around a long time anyway. It's a good movie. Groundhog Day. Check it out if you haven't already. And then use it for that mental exercise and help finding your passion or the things that you just really want to do. It's a, it's a good point, John. Thanks for making it. Here's a question from Steven. Steven says, uh, Dear Jack, I've listened to your podcast in the past, but episode 1749 on financial preparedness really woke me up. I would appreciate any suggestions for a second job. Where to, where, where to look you can give uh, some background. If I'm 25, work full-time job for a beer distributing company. I was an engineer for an oil service company, was laid off in March. I've been picking up extra weekend shifts, uh, which has helped, but I know I can do more. Thanks for you sharing your experience and knowledge, Jack Steven. Okay, I'm going to give you a couple different ways of looking at this. First of all, right now, if I needed money and I wanted to go the route of I want to just go trade my time for money, The number one thing I would consider doing is driving for a company like Uber or Lyft or something like that, or working for Amazon as a delivery contractor that basically works like your Uber or Lyft, but you're delivering people's stuff. Um, they probably have opportunities for all of those things in your area, and it's what I would do first if I was in that mindset because it's completely flexible on your time and schedule and things like that. And uh, I'll see if I can find the link for the Amazon one. And through the magic of pre-recorded shows, I paused the recorder and did a quick web search with some Google Foo. And it's called Amazon Flex. I couldn't remember what it's called, but Amazon Flex, it, it literally is like being an Uber driver for Amazon. So you have you know your time that you're available, and they have stuff that needs to be delivered, and you accept it, and you take it, and you go deliver it. And you get paid. And, and I don't know how true it is because it is marketing, but uh, it says you can make $18 to $25 an hour. Now, of course, this is contingent upon the type of vehicle you have and things like that. Like, is it gas efficient? I don't know if they have any restrictions on how new it has to be, et cetera. Same thing with Uber and Lyft. But those are the, the most flexible ways to make a decent amount of money that I know of uh, without being locked into any kind of a schedule. The, then the other places that you can make decent money that you can usually get a job quick are things like pizza delivery, uh, waitressing, waitering, that type of thing. Those are the kind of the quick go-tos that if you get in the right place, you can make decent money. A, a good bartender around in the, these parts will make in like a chain restaurant a couple hundred dollars a night, especially on weekends, where some of the better places, I know bartenders that make seven, eight hundred, a thousand dollars a night in some places. So, yeah, it, it can be done. So that's that's a quick money thing. You're an engineer? There's got to be something you could be doing, dude. There's got to be something you could take that knowledge and go do without having a job as sort of a kind of like a business or something like that. Or, or what did you pay for an engineering degree for? Unless, let me be clear, 
sometimes people are engineers but don't have engineering degrees, right? And they, they were on the job and they're very specific to that trade. I like a trade level engineer. One of my job titles in the past was sales engineer, uh, and I don't have an engineering degree. But if you have a, if you actually are an engineer, like you're a credentialed engineer, there has to be something you could think of in your engineering mind that would be some sort of a, a business that you could start. I, I, I mean, really, and and that is a much more powerful thing than driving flex for Amazon to, to start building your own business. I, I wish I could go back to when I was 22 and like you and said, I'll work 70 hours, 80 hours. I don't give a shit. I just want more and have thought a little bit more that way, especially in the, and I wish I had the internet then that we have today. Cause I mean, my God, there's so much opportunity out there. So then the other way to look at this is the problem isn't, you know, Stephen, that you're sitting around on a Saturday going, man, I wish I had some work to do. The, the problem is you're sitting around on a Saturday going, man, I wish I had more money, which is a very good thing. I think it's a good thing that we feel motivated by money because it makes us advance ourselves. So you don't have a deficiency in the number of hours you need to work. You have a deficiency in the number of dollars per hour you are paid. In other words, if you made a significantly larger amount of money at your full-time job, you wouldn't be picking up extra shifts and you wouldn't be looking for secondary work. So we can look at improving our lot in life and making more money full-time. That's another way to look at this. And the reality is that the best way to find out about a job opportunity and successfully capitalize on it is from a person rather than from a job board uh, or an internet posting or something like that. And so it might do you well to get out and get involved with things like chambers of commerce and things like that, uh, Toastmasters, uh, church groups, all of that kind of stuff, and just widen your social circle and, and put it out there that, you know, this is my past, this is what I did, the oil sector got hit, I got laid off, I'm delivering beer now, I'm looking for something better. Because if you meet the right person that knows someone that needs someone, that is so much more powerful than sending somebody a resume. And it also works like this. So now, let's say I'm hiring somebody for a, a job with a real opportunity behind it, and I'm looking through job boards and crap like that that I'm sending over to my HR department, and I'm like, i got to solve this problem. I need a person I can count on for this. And I know a guy named Bob, and Bob and I play golf together. And, uh, and Bob says, hey, are you guys hiring anybody? And I go, son of a bitch, right now I, I need somebody. This is what I need. And he says, you know, I know this guy that I've met recently. He was an engineer for the oil fields. And instead of sitting around on his astron, because this is how entrepreneurs talk to each other, by the way, or, or top-level managers talk to each other. We See, we see the people that sit on their ass instead of take a job that's that's not as good. It's sitting on their ass, and we don't really want to hire them. We want to hire the person that's out doing whatever it takes to get by because we know they're going to bring that ethic with them here. That's so that, and So he's delivering beer, and he's picking up extra shifts. He's looking for a second job, but what he really wants is a better career path. You know what? I want to talk to him really, really bad. He just went to the top of the list before I even met him. So that's the other thing is widen that social center and tell your story to people, what you're doing now. And if you go to certain places, it's expected that you would do that. You know, I'm not a religious person, so I'm not going to go use you know adult Sunday school night to widen my uh, social 
uh, circle. But if you are a religious person, then there's nothing wrong with that and having that side effect on it. Right? As long as you're not there purely for that purpose. Like I said, I wouldn't do it because that's the only reason I would be there. But there's got to be some other um, places where you can interact with professional people and, and develop that relationship and let people know what you're looking for if you just want more a better job. If you want to go back, because I imagine you made more money as an engineer on the oil fields than you make now as a beer delivery guy. And ain't nothing wrong with delivering beer, but it's only ever going to pay so much. And a computer just delivered beer in Denver. So, I mean, how long is it going to be before maybe there's not a lot of work doing that? So you got to think about your long-term security as well. So those are the three different ways I come at this. Think about it more entrepreneurially, expand that social circle, or if you must, Find a very, very flexible thing, and I think Amazon Flex, and it was me. We had my conversation earlier about dealing with people. I don't like dealing with people. I really don't. Um, I would rather drive around people's packages than people. But if you're a people person, then you might want to do Uber, and if you have a nice vehicle, and you qualify to be Uber black, then most of the people that you pick up are people who are a little bit more upwardly mobile, And generally, people have conversations with their Uber driver. And where are you going? Why are you in town? Whatever. Yeah, I'm doing this because, I mean, no one's going to take that the wrong way. You're not asking for a job or whatever. Just I'm driving this because I need to do some extra work right now because I got laid off from my job as an engineer with the oil fields. And I deliver beer by day and people by night. The guy that knows somebody or needs somebody is going to perk up the minute you say that. So that would be a reason to go that route. Now let's take another one. This is our final one today. This comes from Tim. Tim says, Jack, I would like your opinion on big game hunting, trophy hunting. Recently on social media, I've seen a lot of talk about boycotting a certain sandwich restaurant chain due to the fact that the owner frequently hunts quote-unquote trophy game. Though I feel the boycott aspect of this is BS, I do see a moral dilemma when it comes to hunting something you don't intend to serve for dinner. I get that for certain species there's a need to cull the population for control, but I'm not entirely sure this pertains to elephants or lion, etc. I could be misguided in my assumption that the animal isn't put to good use aside from the pelt or tusks, but I've never heard an argument in defense of the action, thanks, Tim. Well, that's because you're not talking to people that know what the hell they're talking about, Tim. Every, so you're talking about specifically Africa? Every scrap of an animal killed on a safari-style hunt is used by somebody. The majority of the meat taken, including antelopes and things like that, the hunter might get a little taste of it. It's given to the local people. It's seen as a natural, national resource that's owned by their people. There was a big stink when this uh, girl shot a giraffe with a bow and arrow. And, oh, it's just trophy hunting. You don't know what the hell you're doing. There's a whole rebuttal to it that shows local people carrying giant giraffe ribs on their shoulders away to use the meat. No one eats lions. Bullshit. Bullshit, 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 bullshit. Okay, yeah, that one guy that shot the, 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 uh, the beloved lion Cecil, that was bullshit, too. He was beloved. No one, no one in this country knew who the hell Cecil was. Right, that was a mistake, right? And that was a dumb asshat thing for the the professional hunter. But you put that aside. When somebody shoots a lion, it's used. 
It's used. And yes, they do need, because of the way Africa is today, because of the way it's cut up into nature reserves and hunting reserves and things like that, and it's not just full-on animals go wherever they want anymore because it's a developing part of the world too, yes, lions need to be shot for population control so that areas can be managed. So is it better for the game warden to go out there and shoot the lion, right? Or is it better for a person to pay $20,000 to shoot the lion and that money go to improve the park, to improve wildlife habitat, to improve the lives of the local people, and for all of the, um, the meat to go to local people? So let me explain something overall, too. This whole trophy hunter debate is all from people that have no experience hunting, They don't hunt and they don't know jack shit about hunting. They just don't. Or they would never make the case. Let's, let's, let's bring it home from Africa for a minute and talk about the trophy deer hunter. Okay? And let's compare the trophy deer hunter to Jack. Jack doesn't give a shit about horns. If I get a chance to take a really nice buck, I'll do it. But my wife ain't gonna let me keep it inside the house. It's gonna be out in the garage anyway. If I do have a mounted or something like that, I can't eat horns. So when Jack's out hunting, out comes a doe. Bam! Dead deer! In the refrigerator. Meat. Everybody's happy. Jack is a meat hunter. Jack is going to make full use of that deer. The last deer I shot, I ended up even rendering tallow off of, and there ain't much of it on a deer from Texas because they're not, they don't carry as much fat. But I ran, rendered a, a pint of tallow off the, off the last deer that I had. I used the shakes. I use everything, so everybody's happy. But what did Jack do when that doe stepped out this year? Bam! There wasn't a, there wasn't a second in my mind that I thought, you know, maybe I should pass up this shot. What does the trophy hunter do when the doe walks out? Does a shooter. What does the trophy hunter do when the nice-looking three-and-a-half-year-old eight-point walks out? Doesn't shoot him. Texas, I got five deer tags. If I get an opportunity, I'll use them all. Some places that I hunt, some places that I hunt, they have so many deer, they get coal permits. So I don't even have to use a tag off my license. They give me a tag. So if, if I go shoot one, I'll shoot six freaking deer. I'll shoot as many deer as I legally can, but I'll use every scrap of every deer. Everybody's okay with that. Trophy hunter might go out the whole season and not take a shot because he's holding out for a deer that's better than the last one that he got. I don't understand the mentality, but who's doing more killing? And then trophy hunting itself is a thing, the concept of bigger bucks, has, is what saved all the animals in America that were pushed. White-tailed deer were almost extinct. It was the concept of bucks only and point restrictions and shorter seasons and all that. It wasn't trophy hunters that pushed these animals near extinction. It wasn't the guy that saved up his whole life to go out and shoot one elephant that put elephants near to the endangered species list at one time. It was people killing them for, for billiard balls. And those people were in a, a mode that's a lot more like a meat hunter. They just wanted a different thing off of it. This whole trophy hunter thing is completely stupid. It's nonsense, and it's, it's feel-good liberal idiocy like all the rest of it. And the truth is it's all fueled by anti-hunters who know if they come out and say hunters suck that the level-headed people in the middle will go, you're an idiot. So they found a way to troll you to their side. Because then you're like, well, trophy hunting's wrong. Well, then if that gets to be a very you know, dubious word. So is the guy with six big bucks on his wall, is he a trophy hunter? Yeah. 
Is there anything unsustainable about what he's doing? No. Just because he cared about that wreck, does that mean he didn't eat that meat? No. They make it like people are going out shooting animals, cutting a freaking cape and horns off and leaving them for the buzzards. It's bullshit. It doesn't happen anywhere. Most places you get a fine for it, and these places in Africa where they're saying it happens, you go to freaking prison for it. You'll go to prison for it. Do you understand that? It's all bullshit. Now you know the truth because, gee, you asked a hunter. And you'll hear these people on Facebook and their text comments and shit. I'm a hunter and I never hunt for trophies. They're not even a hunter. They don't know shit. Or they're very myopic in their little world. They don't know anything about the places they're assuming these people are trophy. They might even be a trophy hunter and not know it because they don't know what a trophy hunter is. I use every bit of meat. Would well, you like to shoot bigger bucks? Well, hell yeah. Well, you're a trophy hunter. No, I'm not. Well, if, if there's two deer and one has bigger horns than the other and you shoot the one with bigger horns, what are you going to do with the horns? Hang them on my wall. You're a trophy hunter. Dumbass. Dumbass. Because if you weren't, if you were really out there for sustenance, you'd look for that one-and-a-half-year-old doe because she's freaking tender. She tastes good. Better quality meat. That's what you would be looking for, but you're looking for, you know, if you hunt turkeys and you would shoot the one with the longer beard, you're a trophy hunter. Because the, the, the piece, the symbolic piece of the animal that you save matters to you. That's the very definition of it. Now, are there people, especially very, very wealthy people, that just think it's fun to go on safari and they go over to Africa and they don't give a flying shit about what happens to the meat. All they do is they get spoiled for a week, uh, they're fed the finest food on the planet, high dollar bottles of wine, they shoot 14, 15 animals, they're all mounted and put in some room back in the States or some library or some shit that they have or whatever, and uh, and they don't, they don't really care about the animal as far as using it as a resource at all. Yeah, and I, I still don't care. I still don't care. Because I don't care if you shoot the animal and eat it, or you shoot the animal and somebody else eats it. It's the use of a natural resource in a constructive way as a sustainable part of wildlife game management. And they're hunting endangered species. No, they're not. That's bullshit, too. The leopard's endangered. The leopard is not endangered. There's a shit ton of leopards in Africa. Snow leopard, maybe. But the regular old leopard running around, holy shit, there's a lot of leopards. Well, people don't know the facts. They don't want to know the facts. They want confirmation bias. So we show a picture of a lady with a giraffe or a guy with a lion, and we vilify them out of stupidity and ignorance. That's the facts, Tim. And like I said, you asked a hunter, so now you know. And again, just one last thing. Again, it ain't trophy hunters that hunted the bison almost to extinction. It wasn't trophy hunters that hunted the passenger pigeon to extinction. Trophy hunters, trophy hunters will always always be taking the oldest, most mature of the species, and therefore there will always be more of the species to propagate and, and repopulate itself. Trophy hunters, by the very mechanism that they hunt, are conservation hunters. Let's take, uh, let's, well, that's it. So, uh, anyway, hopefully you enjoyed today's show and, uh, hopefully you learned some things from it. If you like the show and the work we do, consider supporting us by doing your Amazon shopping through tspaz.com. Um, if you, if you're going to buy something on Amazon today or anytime in the future, instead of typing in amazon.com, type in tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com. 
Go to Amazon, search for your items, and select it. When you select it, add it to your cart and buy it. It won't cost any extra money. It won't really take any extra time. And it, it'll, it'll do good for us. It'll support us because we'll be the affiliate that refers your traffic to Amazon. We'll get the affiliate commission on it. I've had this question a lot. People that use Android and iPhone. I, I open Safari or a browser and I go there and I click. And when I, when I click, when I click TSPAS, it defaults over to my Amazon app. That's fine. As long as you go to TSPAS first, doesn't matter if you buy through the app, we still get credit. Uh, so Anytime you're going to buy from Amazon, just consider going to TSPAS first to help support the work we do. Today's item of the day for Amazon is endomycorrhizal fungal inoculation. Mycorrhizal fungus, okay? I always have trouble saying mycorrhiza. I'm not sure I've said it right there. But mycorrhizal fungus are symbiotic fungus that live in the soil that attach themselves to the root systems of plants. And then they grow in the soil and they effectively become a part of the root system. The fungus now is behaving like a root for the plant. It's doubling or tripling the root mass of the plant. And that fungus can reach and go get stuff that the plant can't get on its own. Now, why would the fungus go get something and give it to the plant? Because the fungus is in a symbiotic, it's getting something back from the plant. But the plant says, oh, you would like an exudate. Now, what's an exudate? It's like a little sugar, a little, little carbohydrate, a little protein going on. It's like a cookie or a cake. Think about it like that. And a plant could secrete it out of its root. And you eat a carrot because it tastes good. So think of it like that. It could secrete a little bit of its carrotness out. Well, different fungi want different things from the plant. And the plant says, if you give me zinc then I will give you your exudate. So the fungus goes, and gets a little zinc, and it conveys it up, and they make an exchange. It's not that cut and dry, but it, that's the way that it works. And I've tried a bunch of different mycorrhizal fungus um, inoculants. The one that I found called Endo is made by a company called Sustainable Agricultural Technologies. And this stuff can get expensive, but in this case, they have a one-pound bag for $19.95 and a two-pound bag for $36. Bucks. That's some of the most affordable stuff I've found. It also has four species instead of one. A lot of them only have one. I like having that diversity because different ones might do better for different situations. And it works really good. We've seen big differences. Put two plants in the ground, put a pinch of it in the, on the root ball of one and not the other, and the, the plants just perform better. And the more you use it, the more it becomes systemic in your soil, in your ground, in your garden. And the better your plants grow and the better your plants work. It's affordable and a little goes a long way. For instance, just to kind of give you an idea of how much a pound does, if you just wanted to broadcast it on an acre, just, just throw it on the ground, which I don't necessarily recommend, but it wouldn't be a terrible idea, and water it in to help rehabilitate the whole acre of pasture, you'd use about 10 pounds to the acre. So if you're the typical homesteader, farmsteader with a little garden, a pound or two is, is well more than enough for your whole season. It'll make a real difference in your, your plant's resiliency. So consider checking it out today. There's a whole write-up on it that I did for you. Again, endomycorrhizal uh, fungus from Sustainable Agricultural Technologies, Inc. Uh, but all your shopping through tspaz.com helps us greatly no matter what you buy. And remember, when you shop through tspaz, there's no Jack Spearco surcharge. You pay the same price for the same stuff. You just help us when you do it. That makes it a painless way to support the show that you listen to every day. All right, with that, let's get to the song of the day. So the song of the day, on, on Friday I said, we're turning a corner in music in America. We're turning a true corner to rock, the, the age of rock and roll. 
So you might be like, what the hell, Jack? What the hell? Uh, you said we're going to be getting some rock and roll, and now you're dropping some freaking Doris Day on us. But that was the number one song of the year this year. And it was in a movie, and I don't remember which, but it was in a movie with Doris Day. It was also kind of the heyday of like things like Sound of Music and stuff like that, these musicals, right? Um, but it was the number one song of the year, K Sera Sera by Doris Day. Now, remember what I said in the, the history segment, Heartbreak Hotel, Hound Dog, and Don't Be Cruel by Elvis Presley, and Blueberry Hill by Fats Domino? Um, those were two, three, four, and five. Elvis Presley, which is rock and roll as it gets for the time, had three of the top five songs for the year. But he got beat up by beat out by Doris Day. We're gonna see that change. We're gonna see that change real, real soon. But I'm not a huge fan of this song, but on some levels I think it fits in with what we talk about here all the time. Circle of influence and circle of concern. In case you've lived under a rock or something your whole life and you don't know the, the term que sera, sera, it's Spanish. And it basically means what will be, will be. Whatever will be, will be. The future's not ours to see, que sera, sera. And if you threw the whole song, this, you know, asking your mother, what will it be when I grow up? And when she gets married, what will our life be? And the response is, you know, the future's not ours to see. Whatever will be, will be. And a lot of things that we spend the most of our time worrying about in life. See, actually, part of why I don't like the song is, like, you have a whole shitload of impact and influence on when you're growing up and you're learning in school and planning your career on what you will be. You don't know what you'll be, but you have a lot of influence on it. When you get married to somebody and you commit to the rest of your life to be with that person, you have a huge part in determining whether or not that happens or not, and whether you're going to work hard on your relationship, whether you're going to compromise, all of those things. So the things in the song really, while the sentiment's there, you don't really know what's going to happen, you deal with it as you go, you can have a very big intention on, and that intention, if acted upon, can have a very positive result in your life. But think about all of the shit in life where people are worried about what some country's doing. You, you, you don't control what your own country does. You're not going to control what another country does or what some person on the other side of the world is doing. And it might not be that there's not a point of concern there, but in general, can you do something about it? No? Then screw it. You focus on the things that you actually can influence. Everything else, que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. When I was just a little girl, I asked my mother, what will I be? Will I be pretty? Will I be rich? Here's what she said to me. What will be, will be When I grew up and fell in love I asked my sweetheart what lies ahead Will we have rainbows day after day Here's what my sweetheart said Que sera, sera, 
future's not ours to see. Que sera, sera. What will be, will be. Now I have children of my own. They ask their mother, what will I be? Will I be handsome? Will I be rich? I tell them tenderly. Que sera, sera. Say 